to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm John Peters, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. And I'm Sharon Liu, also a graduate student. In this episode, we'll talk about the complexity of the synapse, how basic science can lead to clinical understanding, and the importance of being intellectually well-rounded. All this and more coming up. We're here today with Professor A.A. Kavalali, the Effie Marie Kane Scholar in Medical Research in the Departments of Neuroscience and Physiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Kavalali. Well, thank you for um, thank you for your time also. So first, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Like, where did you grow up and how did you decide you wanted to become a scientist? So I was born in Istanbul and uh, in, in Turkey. Uh, I, I grew up in Istanbul and uh, I studied my undergraduate uh, in Istanbul in a university called Boğaziçi University, which is actually formerly Robert College, the first uh, American institution of higher education founded outside of the United States back in 1863. So I studied electrical engineering. I uh, really liked the background and the rigor, the mathematical rigor of electrical engineering, but I was not that much into being an electrical engineer per se as a profession. Hmm. So what I did is um, I was actually kind of in a search for uh, new directions. I was taking physics courses, was interested in solid state physics. But then there was a professor there um, who was in the biomedical engineering department uh, who was actually an electrophysiologist. And he was uh, doing experiments in Paris uh, in Ecole Normale, and he was going back and forth. So he actually told me about electrophysiology and mm. this kind of this revolution at the time of these patch <laughs> recordings. And, you know, you can actually now record in central neurons in the mammalian nervous system. So I was quite excited. And uh, the, the, the problem was I didn't have much of a um, lab experience. Mm -hmm. I applied for graduate schools, and the ones that I were accepted was more about biomedical engineering because it kind of fits in my, my trajectory. And uh, so there I, I ended up in New Jersey back in uh, 1990 as a graduate student in biomedical engineering. It sounds like that was a, a very influential professor because electrophysiology has played a big role in your career since then. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I you know, being an electrical engineer, at the time I, I didn't know, but what I realized is that actually a lot of major accomplished investigators in the field that actually use electrophysiology actually have that training. They're either physicists or electrical engineers, including my postdoctoral mentor, Richard Chen, who was actually electrical engineering by training also in uh, from MIT. I see. Mm. And so after you decided to pursue a PhD in, in biomedical engineering, um, you had to come to the U.S. for grad school, and you also transitioned into really neuroscience topics. So we're wondering, you know, what was this transition like in terms of moving to the States, but also in terms of going to the field of neuroscience? So um, I, I work with uh, a, a professor at Rutgers in New Jersey named mm -hmm. Mark Plummer, who's actually a graduate of your program. <laughs> in the 80s, uh, in him and his wife, actually, Robin Davis, they were both uh, uh, students. Actually, uh, Mark worked with Jeff Wine uh, as a graduate student. So, uh, I started doing single channel recordings. So that was the thing at the time, and it was quite excited. You can actually, you know, in an intact cell, you can uh, record a function of a single protein molecule. And that's what I did 
And that was my kind of entrance into neuroscience. It's kind of very, um, let's say, uh, ion channel biophysics perspective is how I entered. And the transition was fun. It was a lot of fun. So I, and one thing about electrical engineering background is that a lot of concepts uh, become pretty much self-evident when you start studying neuroscience. Of course, there were a lot of things I need. I had to learn about biology, but in terms of conceptually, it was very exciting. It was, uh, you know, it was actually great to come from a more quantitative background and going into a very uh, interesting and open biological question. So, a little bit more specifically, so you discovered a new type of calcium channel. And um, also, you were looking at potentiation of calcium channel activity. So if you would, could you put us into a bigger context, some of this work, and tell us a little bit more about these projects? Basically, um, we actually, uh, at the time, most of the definition of what is a new calcium channel, what is not, has been uh, functional. So we actually did these recordings, and we actually identified a form of uh, channel activity, L-type voltage-gated calcium channel, mm -hmm. which is, you know, found in pretty much, you know, in muscle and pretty much everywhere in the body, including the brain. And what we found is that this channel could open at much lower membrane potentials than the, let's say they're cardiac um, brothers, let's say. <laughs> so, um, so that was the basically we thought it was a different channel because it was clearly a very stable pattern of activity that's sustained after many manipulations. But to this day, we don't have a clear molecular picture of why this activity occurs. Only thing we know is that there's a lot of evidence that L-type voltage-gated calcium channels can be either through uh, signaling tra signal transduction pathways or by a stimulation can be forced to open at very low membrane potentials. So it's actually other groups have shown this, and that was uh, pretty much the crux of my work to um, basically characterize this. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, I mean, in today's standards, it was probably somewhat more descriptive, but I always believe in to have actually a very clear description of a phenomenon so that, you know, if you want to attack it molecularly, so you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But um, I kind of left the field after that. I mean, I was, uh, I didn't really work much on calcium channels, right. except for briefly in, um, in Dick Chan's lab when I moved to Stanford. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked on dendritic channels, uh, right. which was an open question at the time. So going back to the methods, um, single cell, whole cell patch recording isn't a very easy technique to master really quick. And so we were wondering what was it like learning a challenging technique like this? Especially coming not so much from the biology background. So I think the experiments were simple, but um, it wasn't necessarily easy at the time. I mean, um, now you may consider easy. For instance, if you think about patch clamp, you know, patch clamp technique now comes across as easy, but it wasn't easy back in the 70s. It took like decades for people to develop that approach, and they were lucky there was this giga seal and everything. So at the time, there was, you know, having culturing neurons and then, you know, recording, getting good recordings. Noise is a major problem. Mm -hmm. so although the, the experiment itself is simple to really get down to very low noise so that you can actually dissolve, uh, resolve uh, single channels has been uh, tedious. So then I, um, you know, switched to more synaptic transmission, but actually I used more initially uh, more optical methods to study the synaptic function. Yeah, so kind of going along what you're saying, from Rockstars, you came to Stanford in 1995 um, to conduct a postdoc with Dr. Richard Sain here. Um, and 
as you were just saying, you kind of shifted your focus from a whole cell level to the synapse specifically. You began to look at mechanism of synaptic clustering as well as um, fast entocytosis. Um, so we're wondering why did you have this shift in focus? That's our first question yeah. when we looked at this trajectory. Oh, that's, that's very, yeah, very legitimate. So basically, um, so at the time when I was doing, so this is usually, I think you will face this too. At some point, you have to basically try to um, chart a territory for yourself where you can actually make your impact. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, um, so ion channel biophysics, although uh, in terms of, uh, let's say, an art form was uh, excellent and was very uh, fulfilling and I learned a lot. Uh, but ion channel um, studies have been shifting towards more and more structure function. As you know, this was kind of coincided with the time of this, you know, crystallography revolution. Uh, which, you know, you could actually now crystallize ion channels and look at them, their uh, molecules uh, at the molecular level, atomic level. So, uh, but uh, my interests were not really at that uh, stage. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at more, let's say, complex systems. And to me, synapse is actually a quite a complex system, even today. And that's pretty much comes, you know, it ties into what I'm going to speak at Stanford in a couple of days. But um, so the point was that there were these um, optical methods emerging where you can actually visualize and uh, record synaptic function at the single synapse level. So that was exciting to me uh, at the time and still is because electrophysiological recording of synaptic transmission has been historically, you know, you record from neurons, but you really don't know where your responses come from. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it is kind of, it was kind of a blind. Even even when you know the, which cell you're recording from, the cell has like, you know, thousands of synapses on it. And each synapse is a very complex structure and how it functions. So having you suddenly seeing these synapses and visualizing them, Using these FM dyes at the time, there was the kind of method of choice, which later we shifted to other methods, it made a big impact on me. So now I could see, visualize synapses, and I was quite excited to uh, look into them more in depth. So, yeah, I guess my next question goes along with that. So how did this end up shaping the direction that um, whenever you started your own lab? So I, I, I was uh, quite, let's say, technically I was quite uh, prepared using optical methods and, uh, you know, electrophysiology to study synaptic transmission and kind of really formulate hypotheses at the single synapse level. But one thing that was missing was uh, that I didn't have much of a molecular expertise. Mm -hmm. And there um, I was quite lucky to be recruited to UT Southwestern. And at the time, as you know, now your faculty member, Tom Shidoff, who used to be actually mm -hmm. a, a chair of uh, the department I'm in right now, he actually recruited me. And uh, so, and he, as you know, he has this, he had this uh, big uh, interest, I mean, uh, over decades, uh, trying to understand the molecular architecture of the synapse. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we kind of uh, complemented each other in a way uh, early on where he was approaching uh, uncovering the tremendous complexity in synapse structure. And we could come in with, you know, some functional techniques to look into these in, in, in more detail. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I learned a lot. I mean, he, although he was, I was an independent investigator, he was also a mentor to me, especially introducing me to more the, the molecular aspects of uh, synapse structure and function. Cool. So I think now we're going to fast forward to 1999 when you joined UT Southwestern. 
And uh, it was here where you began presenting evidence for the existence of heterogeneity among synaptic vesicles. And synaptic vesicles are important, so for those listening who are unfamiliar, um, we want to give them a little background. Synaptic vesicles are tiny lipid spheres in neurons that are loaded with molecules of neurotransmitter. And uh, these neurotransmitter molecules are released when the vesicle membrane fuses with the presynaptic membrane of the neuron. This is, uh, leads to signal propagation in the nervous system. Um, so synaptic vesicles, as I'm sure you are well familiar with, form synaptic vesicle clouds. And I think you spent some time studying the synaptic vesicle cloud. So um, if you would, could you set the stage for us in the late 90s, early 2000s, what was known about the synaptic vesicle cloud? So, I mean, clearly a very uh, intricate molecular picture has been emerging uh, as there were a lot of uh, very, you know, now classical studies on snare molecules, how snares may uh, elicit fusion and uh, um, regulate fusion. This was actually a lot of work done uh, at UT Southwestern as well as at, at Stanford at the time with Richard Scheller, who was actually in the um, mm-hmm. uh, Department of Molecular Cell Physiology, and several other groups uh, kind of elucidating kind of a very detailed molecular picture. So that what electrophysiologists has been studied now, it's kind of have a very strong molecular foundation that was emerging. But also the issue is uh, for us, when we study, started looking at single individual synapses, we could actually see a lot of diversity. At the time, if you look at the papers coming along, that we could actually see that very synapses, even neighboring ones, are quite different from each other. <laughs> and on the other hand, using these uh, optical approaches, what we kind of stumbled on are cases where, depending on the previous activity or lack of activity, somehow vesicles recycle, and you can actually visualize this very nicely using these dyes and now these more, let's say, molecular markers. But uh, there seems to be some sort of a memory, as if vesicles know who they are. And uh, functionally, doing electrophysiological recordings, people have seen and divided vesicles into pools. It was mostly stated as, you know, uh, their availability from release is what makes some difference. It's like how far from they are from a release site. And, uh, but uh, some of the evidence that we've been getting, actually this even goes back to my, you know, late postdoctoral work at Stanford, or early work at, at UT Southwestern, that it seemed like uh, vesicles are um, kind of have an identity that are distinct. Mm-hmm. You know, each vesicle, or not maybe each, but there are populations of vesicles that are preferentially, for instance, recycling spontaneously, and the others are, you know, more preferentially responding to activity, and maybe different degrees of activity. I think, if, if, if anything, this complexity that we kind of proposed is, is tip of the iceberg. I think there's actually more uh, complexity there. And it's not that surprising. I mean, we are being over uh, decades been somewhat biased by this electron micrograph picture to show the cluster, as you said, a cloud of vesicles. But if you look at any cell biological system where there's vesicle trafficking is involved, there's actually a lot of uh, heterogeneity because these vesicles originate from different sources, as, as you may know. You know, there are like um, some come from endosomes, some come from plasma membranes, some are um, yeah, there are many sources. So it's not that surprising that there will be this heterogeneity in their functional response, and uh, and what we think is that this um, heterogeneity is actually meaningful. It's not just an accident of design, but it's actually a meaningful heterogeneity that a single synapse is tuned to respond to different stimuli and different conditions uh, in a very specific way. So it's kind of a single synapse um, multiplexing. That's the kind of picture we have right now. 
And uh, so you were talking about, you know, you can have synaptic vesicles formed from very different sources. And do you believe that this is where the heterogeneity originates? Or where do you think, you know, this ultimately comes from? Oh, so I think there are many different sources of heterogeneity. One is that, um, yes, so there are vesicles that form early on, for instance. There's always, there's always been evidence there. Like immature synaptic vesicles are different than what uh, um, the recycling, rapidly recycling vesicles in, in a mature synapse. On the other hand, uh, endosomal trafficking really plays a role. Uh, and uh, the vesicles that actually traverse endosomes will probably likely have, uh, and there's actually good evidence for this, have different properties that uh, want those that skip endosomes. And um, also vesicles that, which, and some of the data I'm going to present that generate something some will be published, some that uh, hopefully will be published, you know, vesicles are generated from the plasma membrane in response to like a single stimulation versus strong activity, I think will have having different uh, properties. Now, on the other hand, it's not only, I think, what is intrinsic to the vesicles. I think there are other molecules that interact with the vesicles mm -hmm. and the proteins that will also confer some of this heterogeneity. I mean, that's, you may know, like um, uh, complexants, for instance. I mm -hmm. mean, they interact with the snare complex and uh, they regulate fusion. And I think the level to extend, and there are probably other molecules as complexes that interact with this, uh, distinct vesicle compositions and the conferred uh, functional specificity. I think molecularly, uh, time, I think it's conceivable to actually have a, let's say, a more uh, accurate picture of, uh, of this uh, different vesicle populations and how they're generated. So going back to uh, the pools of synaptic vesicles that have been well established in literature about the likelihood that a vesicle is going to move to the membrane and actually fuse, um, defined as ready releasable, recycling, reserve, and there are other names that you see in the literature. So how do you see the heterogeneity molecularly fitting into these pools? Do you think within each pool there's probably a lot of heterogeneity, or how, how do you see things? Exactly. So I think clearly the picture is not complete, but I think even with what those pools as you define, uh, describe, um, yes, there is a substantial heterogeneity. Like, what is the resting pool? That's it's also, is there, are those vesicles that are actively prevented from uh, recycling? Or are those vesicles that have a distinct molecular composition that makes them incapable of recycling? Or are they, uh, are they vesicles that basically are waiting for the right signal to actually get mobilized? Mm -hmm. I think there's evidence for all of them. And, and probably, um, I think they're all correct. And, of course, it's going to be uh, very synapse-specific. I mean, some synapses uh, will probably have a distinct uh, composition, will take advantage of one form of release versus another. As you know, when you do electrophysiological look across the brain, there are synapses that are preferentially released asynchronously, for instance, that uh, they don't actually release neurotransmitter really tight uh, in a you know, very really, uh, time, um, let's say, stamped fashion to an action potential but they kind of release a neurotransmitter in a kind of more um, of a distributed fashion in time. And then there are ones that, you know, we see and others actually see in, you know, pretty much phylogenetic spectrum that there are, um, don't like to respond to action potentials. They preferentially release neurotransmitters spontaneously or in a way that regulated by neuromodulators. So I think, um, I think all these things will kind of play in. So something, when I'm listening to this, I'm curious, did you approach this with a hypothesis that this is how things were going to be? 
or um, is it was this more exploratory science? And I guess in your career in general, what do you think you relate to more, the exploratory side of things or hypothesis-driven science? I, I think both. I think um, uh, I think the more exciting part is the exploratory science. When I was starting out, um, we basically did experiments to kind of characterize, um, describe, which is now, as you know, descriptive has turned into a bad word in the <laughs> But I think that's how we started, to actually really see what's going on. And as time goes, we actually try to refine our observations and refine an hypothesis. Uh, I think I've, I've done both, and I think you need both. Um, you need to have an open mind, but then at some point you need to really focus and ask very testable questions. Even though, you know, the answers, you know, they may be wrong, I think it's important to kind of formulate clear hypotheses because as you disprove your hypotheses, or get, you know, the alternative answers to actually still um, progress occur. So um, I think both. I don't think, I don't favor one or the other. So more recently, um, it seems that you have become interested in different aspects of synaptic function, including the effect of um, antidepressants on synaptic function. Um, so could you describe how you got started on this project? Yeah, so um, Lisa Montagia, uh, who is uh, who actually visited Stanford last year, uh, she's my wife. We um, uh, starting out, I was quite familiar um, what she's been working on. I mean, I knew about this uh, question of antidepressants. She comes from a very different neuroscience tradition than I do. I mean, she trained with Eric Nessler and Marina Wolf, and you know, is a lot more into this uh, the, the the field of molecular psychiatry, like trying to understand. Yeah, the molecular mechanisms of psychiatric illness and also trying to understand the, uh, the pathway that will lead to therapeutic advance. So that's what she's been focused on. And she did a lot of work on BDNF and to, to show that how BDNF is critical for a, for a, a reproducible and uh, antidepressant response, which is kind of in the, in the realm of classical antidepressants. But then came along ketamine, which is a um, very interesting observation, which comes from the clinic. Uh, very, I think, a serendipitous observation in the clinic, um, which there were, you know, very few papers early in 2000s, but then it's uh, a finding that gets replicated over and over again when in patients, especially those that are treatment-resistant, application of a very low dose of ketamine results in a very strong antidepressant response, and these people have not really responded to many other treatments. So this was a kind of posed a puzzle, So because a lot of the theories on how antidepressants work as you may know, uh, has been based on a lot of uh, chronic uh, reorganization of nervous uh, neuronal circuitry. You know, mm -hmm. there was a lot of thinking about uh, chromatin remodeling and, you know, uh, neurogenesis. And there's a lot of things because antidepressants, classical antidepressants, take a long time to work. But in the case of ketamine, this happens within, you know, within hours. You know, mm -hmm. that's very fast. It's kind of a game changer. Really, this is... I would say this is like a true conceptual advance that I don't think previously people even thought that you could actually trigger such a fast response because uh, the point was that this is a very fundamental change in circuitry, so you have to kind of reconfigure it to fix it or to, to alleviate the symptoms. So when this came along, we started uh, talking about it, discussing, and we kind of uh, found a lot of uh, conceptual analogies between just the Synaptic plasticity field, as you know, in the, there are these plasticities, LTP, LTD, and also homeostatic synaptic plasticities that, um, you know, regulate synaptic efficacy, and then how ketamine might be working. And what's 
puzzling about ketamine is that it is a blocker of NMD receptors. And as you know, NMD receptor activation is associated with a lot of plasticities. But then how do you actually get an effect by blocking this? Mm -hmm. uh, that basically triggered us uh, to uh, we kind of joined our forces because that also started overlapping um, with some of the findings that we had on this spontaneous neurotransmitter release and how it might be involved in signaling. So mm -hmm. that ties into the question of if you ask me what these all these pools that you're studying, vesicle pools, at the end, what is it good for? I mean, does this actually mean anything postsynaptically? So we were actually trying to address that question. And some of these findings suggested that these release events, if you release spontaneously or in response to an action potential, activate distinct populations of receptors. So the kind of this, this, this uh, heterogeneity is also carried to the postsynaptic side. And there was also other evidence in the field on this. And then we kind of uh, tried to kind of ask the question, I think in a very hypothesis-driven way, to can we actually merge these two concepts and look at how a antidepressant might be working, blocking an injury receptor, and uh, if that actually taps onto any of these pathways that are homoesthetic synaptic plasticity pathways. And we think it's, again, I think that uh, this homoesthetic synaptic plasticities, as we understand them more, I think there are several of them. It's not that just a single uh, mechanism, a single um, uh, finding. Um, I think there will be a very interesting avenue for treatment advance in psychiatric disorders. And I think some of the already existing um, treatments already kind of use this pathway. That's really cool. It's really cool seeing basic science transition into clinically relevant science. It must have been a fun transition to make. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. And then you feel that it, what you do, um, you know, in, 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 in essence, of course, it always starts at personal curiosity, but it's very rewarding to see that it actually may uh, lead to something uh, meaningful for the people at large. Yeah. And so would you say looking at um, these treatments that don't really have a very well-defined mechanism and then figuring that out and then helping to take that into a clinic, is that something that you think you will want to further pursue? Or what, what do you see as the future directions of your research in general? So um, I think what I see is, um, to me, I mean, my base and my strength and my uh, ultimate curiosity is a very basic at the synaptic level to really understand a single synapse as a as a as a machine. Now, there of course, when we do this work, there are a lot of predictions that come along, or there are a lot of observations that have relevance to other questions in neuroscience, and therefore, when those emerge, I'm more than happy to you know try to address them or contribute. Uh, from our perspective, uh, that if we can explain if there is, you know, ketamine is one, there are a lot of other observations. And I think it's very important. I mean, there is this thing called translational neuroscience, as you know. Mm -hmm. But I favor, to be honest, is not really trying to be in between. I favor to be, I myself, a very, uh, you know, having a very basic fundamental neuroscience approach to very fundamental questions. I would like to kind of keep in touch over time you know, as, as time goes with um, really strong clinical because that's what the strength, a lot of these antidepressants are, you know, serendipitous observations and they all come from the clinic and ketamine is the same. So I think there is very strong, well-documented clinical observations that you can actually carry back into basic realm and try to understand mechanisms and then try to make them better. I, I, I believe this is kind of a reverse translation approach mm -hmm. and, Lisa actually has been, of course, more involved in this over, uh, over a long time, but I, I, I believe in the same approach, the strength of it.
Yeah, that sounds really cool. And um, we don't want to take too much of your time, so just a, a few brief moments. The last main question we have for you is, um, of course, you're coming to visit Stanford very soon, and um, we're all very excited to come see you talk. Would you mind giving a brief preview of that talk, just a little snippet maybe of what you're going to be talking about? Yeah, so basically what I will cover is what pretty much what we talked about in this uh, interview. Initially, I will start with some of our early observations uh, on you know, why we think there are distinct pools and these are actually distinct identities, not only just something uh, uh, determines what, uh, how a vesicle is, how close it is to a release site. And then I will present some of our unpublished work. I mean, having, you know, Stanford is, I know there are people who are not familiar with our work, but also there are actually people, uh, close colleagues, former colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, friends who are actually quite familiar with our work. So I would not like to bore them. So I would like to present some of our unpublished uh, work kind of our new directions, let's say, in uh, how we think these vesicle pools might be generated and um, some insight into that. And then I will kind of get into uh, what does this mean for neural signaling and kind of uh, discussing some aspects, signaling pathways that might actually be relevant to the, this antidepressant work, but I think will also have more general implications. So I'm not really going to talk about antidepressants per se, but the, the signaling pathways that are... I think overlapping with this um, this presynaptic mechanisms that we are um, studying. Cool, sounds like a really exciting talk. <laughs> um, so at the end, we just want to end with something um, a little more just light. Um, so we have some rapid fire questions, and the first one is: If you could go back in time and speak to yourself again as a graduate student, then what advice would you give yourself? I, um, to be honest, uh, just keep on doing what you're doing. It's gonna... <laughs> uh, I don't want to sound as self-assured, but so far I've, <laughs> I've been extremely lucky with the schools that I've been to um, and um, mentors that I had. And to be honest, I cannot, uh, I would just say, I wouldn't, I would tell myself not to get too stressed because at the end <laughs> it will work out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's reassuring. <laughs> All right. So, um, growing up or even now, did you have any scientific or non-scientific heroes or heroines that you you've really looked up to? I um, um I mean, over the years, I um, uh, appreciated a lot of uh, let's say intellectuals out there. I mean, one person that I really uh, admired it's he's a, a novelist, and you guys may have heard of him, Orhan Pamuk, who is. Uh, who actually grew up at the same part of Istanbul that I grew up. He, um, you know, became a, you know, celebrity worldwide. And, but I was quite familiar with his writings and his books early on before he was a big celebrity. And I still find them quite insightful. And I was very happy when he received the Nobel Prize. And so, um, so he is one person that I, um, you know, is totally outside of science, but actually affected mm-hmm. because he kind of, his work, especially one book, Black Book, kind of really put a perspective on, the, let's say, the, the first 20 years of my life in, in Istanbul. So, you know, I, we didn't talk much about it, but it's a fascinating city uh, with uh, very rich history. And there are a lot of uh, people. I mean, I, as a scientist, I am quite the admirer over the years of Erwin Schrödinger and several others who are not only um, scientists per se, which are good in what they're doing uh, scientifically or technically, but also great intellectuals. And I kind of tend to 
I started to admire those people more and more because I think we have less and less of them. I think scientists, which I mean, this is something that people like Schrodinger and others have been lamenting over the years and uh, for decades, that science is uh, getting um, in a way too specialized and uh, people are getting, on one hand, a lot of technical sophistication in approach to their scientific questions, but they're kind of losing the let's say, the aspect of science, which is, you know, more like the polymath aspect, you know, putting your work in a con historical context or really, you know, knowing about your environment and, you know, about the political situation in the country you're in or in the world. I think kind of having a more a global perspective in what we're doing as scientists um, is, is useful. And I'm kind of sad to see that a lot of very successful colleagues that I meet, they're not necessarily... Uh, let's say they're very well versed in the, the, the world we live in or the, the, the historical perspective. Hmm. So that's, uh, that's something that at the, the once, whenever I meet people like that, I mean, I think I can give a long list. Uh, <laughs> but I think there's still a minority in the bigger picture of science today. I always admire them. Cool. Well, one last question. If you could pick any other topic in the world to study, science or non-science, what would you pick? Um, I think I would have actually really wanted to go into uh, be a historian, but a really, you know, documentarian historian uh, kind of focused more in the um, history of uh, Istanbul, starting with, the, you know, the Byzantium and the Roman Empire and the, you know, Eastern Roman Empire, mm -hmm. and really uh, building on the, the meaning of that city. So I would have loved to, uh, which this is something, you know, I think kind of grew in me as I've been living away from the city. Mm. And looking back, I'm more and more admiring the accomplishments of people who have built the city and lived there over centuries. Mm -hmm. And um, it is a very interesting place and actually a lot of uh, ideas of you know what we take for granted in humanity today, in a way, in many respects, have originated from there. And I think it's somewhat underappreciated. I mean, it's kind of at the corner of Europe but um, I think had a huge amount of influence in the development of the thought, as well as the more, let's say, the Eastern thought. I, I would have uh, really liked to be a scholar of that. I mean, I'm just only an amateur reading you know, about it, but I would love to actually contribute into the more um, digging up you know, new understanding of that uh, perspective. That sounds very interesting. That would be really cool if we could see it. <laughs> Turkish history book from Ege yourself. Yeah, maybe, maybe down the road. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We really look forward to your talk. Yeah, it was it was a great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate this. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when we'll speak with Dr. Indira Ramon from Northwestern University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurai West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by Ada Yi, Luis Guillem, Eddie Albron, Andrew Gundren, Via Nguyen, Jordan Sorkin, John Peters, and myself, Sharon Liu. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neurightwest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. 
You can also follow Neurite West on Twitter using our handle at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk. I'm John Peters.